0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pog. I'm your host Luke Boggs and I'm joined by Kyle Hayes. Hey Kyle, how's it going? It's going
1: pretty good. You're doing the intro this week. Why are you doing
0: the intro? I know it's because surprise surprise we have some of that special content that we promised. Uh, we This is a uh, sugo Peach Pog conversation. It's a bit more political than most of the conversations I'd like. So uh, Kyle, tell, tell me who you talk to.
1: So I talked to Buzz Brockaway. He is a state representative from Lawrenceville currently, and he is also re- running for the Republican nomination for secretary of state in the 2018 election.
0: Yeah, I to this talk. is pretty interesting, uh, as you guys point out, but I think it is well worth noting uh representative Brockway is actually pretty active on social media and I think he does a good job of talking to uh his constituents or at least you know providing them with content about what he's doing he usually would put out some videos while he's in session and stuff like that and you know he's commenting on our show a couple times so uh that was interesting and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to him uh what what did you think of the conversation
1: I thought it went really well. Um, I think he has a lot to say about what he wants to do as Secretary of State. We talk a little bit about, um, you know, the campaign and and what he's looking forward to doing. Um, And then he's very thoughtful around education policy. So we, uh, for the second part of it, we dig into a little bit of of his record at the legislature and and how things went um, with some education legislation that he was pushing this year so. Um, I think on those two points, it was a really enjoyable conversation. And I, I hope our listeners like hearing from Buzz.
0: Yeah, I I enjoyed it, too. Uh, You know, obviously, I disagree with him on some of the policy prescriptions that he'd like to see. But on some of the election stuff, I was, uh, you know, excited to hear that he was interested in updating some of the technology. I was less excited to hear him go into some of the talking points with uh, the Ossoff race. But we'll come break because he came on our show. And uh, but anyway, uh, this is a fun conversation. So I hope uh, everyone enjoyed listening to it as much as I did
1: all right and with that uh we'll throw it to me and buzz So thanks so much for coming on the show, Buzz. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kyle. Looking forward to it. Um, So today we're going to have a two-part discussion. Uh, So Buzz is running for Secretary of State, and we're going to talk a little bit about his campaign and and what he'd like to do if he was elected Secretary of State. But Buzz has also been in the House for quite a while. He's done a lot um, on a lot of other policy issues, including education. And uh, at least from my perspective, he's one of the more visible uh, representatives on Facebook and social media. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit about those things in our second part of the episode. Uh, But I think we'll just lead off with the first question, which is, uh, Buzz, why would you like to be Secretary of State? And what would you like to do with the job if you get it?
2: Yeah, um, thanks for the question. I I think there's a couple of reasons I'd like to be Secretary of State. Uh, It's a job that's always interested me. I've been interested in elections uh, since my time as a uh, uh, county party chairman. Since I've been in the legislature, I've worked on a committee, the Governmental Affairs Committee, that deals with that, too. So that's something that I've always been interested in. And I think we, can, we have a lot of opportunities there, I think, to improve our system, which we can talk about as we go along here. But also, uh, the whole area of, of professional licensing, occupational licensing, is something that's of interest to me. Uh, we've, we license a lot of professions in Georgia, and um, there's some things I think we need to do there. And uh, I just, you know, it's it's maybe the geekiest of all uh, state offices, you know, statewide offices. And, you know, I'm a pretty nerdy, geeky guy. So I enjoy uh, rolling my sleeves up and, and digging into that kind of policy.
1: All right. Well, um, so as far as I know, I think when people think of the Secretary of State, they might think of the one at the federal level, which is uh, really about a foreign affairs position. I'm not sure uh, people know exactly what the Secretary of State does. But at least from my understanding, that sort of three main areas that the Secretary of State works in, they run our election system, they do occupational licensing, and they do business and corporate registration. Um, So just to start with elections, um, let's start with sort of the news of the day. Um related to elections a, a district court judge in Georgia today op- reopened regist- voter registration in the 6th district congressional race, the special election that's going on between Karen Handel and John Ossoff. Um this was as f- resulting from a suit that was filed against the state alleging that the state had wrongfully shut down registration um you know, in violation of federal law. Um, so did you see that ruling today? And what do you think about that ruling uh, from the court?
2: Yeah, uh, I've been reading over the judge's ruling, and um, I, my big problem with it is this. I think you, you what's happened in effect here is you're changing the rules in the middle of the game. We've had this law in place for a, for a, quite some time, back apparently to the days when Kathy Cox was Secretary of State a number of years ago, and, uh, you know, it, it worked okay. And it seems to me this, this is some a decision that should be made by the legislature, not by a judge, in the middle of a special election. You know, I'm not a lawyer, so I won't uh, tell you, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to sit here and tell you that the judge is wrong. I'm just, I think it's unfortunate that this has happened. Uh, clearly this lawsuit was brought in order to benefit uh, John Ossoff. Uh, because it wouldn't have been broad if the people who were bringing the suit didn't think it would help him win and you know hashtag flip flip the sixth but uh I, I and I think that's unfortunate I think the, the the playing field should be level among all candidates and changing this in the middle advantages uh Mr. Alsoff. so I I wish it had not happened
1: now do you think it advantages OSOF because it's more likely that Osof can register more voters or because this does open up registration for any voters that want to vote in that race. It's not limited to only the Democratic camp.
2: No, I I think, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, in the days leading up to elections, Democrat and, and democratically allied groups spent a lot of effort registering people to vote. Republicans, maybe to our detriment, don't do that. Uh, I don't think you're going to see big organizations coming, swooping in on the Republican side, trying to get people registered to vote. But all of the folks who filed lawsuits, the, filed this lawsuit, uh, the NAACP, the you know Coalition for the People's Agenda and so forth, uh, are probably going to be holding voter registration drives uh, if they're not already tonight. So uh, that does give an advantage uh, to Mr. Ossoff. And uh, I think that's you know, th- this is why you shouldn't change the rules of, uh, in the middle of the game.
1: Um, to to back out into just sort of the policy question on that. Um, so this lawsuit was brought up because it, it alleged that the state had violated a federal law about voter registration. Um, and the court basically held that the state did violate that federal law. But the one thing that I think is a little bit of a gray area in the case law of this without getting into like the legal weeds of this is that registration was held open until 30 days before the primary election that happened on April 18th. Um, And so just as a, as a matter of policy, is there any reason or the reason that that registration was held open until that time is federal law requires that you have a 30 day window. Uh, You can't put registration out more than less than 30 days from the election. Is there any reason that that same policy that applied in the primary on April 18th should not apply to a runoff election?
2: Well, that's then that's the thing. It's, it's a policy issue. Uh, I have no problem with saying, you know what, we want to uh, reopen registration if there's a runoff. Uh, but, you know, the judge didn't really get into that. Uh, you know, what, what's, what is he saying? Is he saying that you can't close... Uh, registration because there might be a runoff. Uh, And, you know, so these are the kind of things, if this had been done legislatively, you could have ironed out all those issues and figured out a way to create a policy that works, that uh, allows uh, local elections officials to register people to vote in in an orderly manner to make sure everybody who wants to vote can vote. Uh, I'm certainly not saying that I don't want people to register to vote. I'm saying that you're changing the rules in the middle of the game, and there's policy implications from this that have to be ironed out, and, uh, th- you know, there has to be a deadline somewhere, because uh, it, it just it just doesn't work to have somebody uh, walking up to the polls on election day saying, I get to register to vote because I want to. Uh, you've got to have live, give local elections officials time to, uh, to verify that the person is who they say they are and live where they say they live, so... You know these sorts of things are are kind of gray and murky. I, you know, as a policy, I have no problem with if there's a runoff, the day after the runoff, or the or the moment that the uh, it's finalized who is in the runoff. You say, all right, uh, voter registration is opened again and we'll close again 30 days before the runoff election. But you know what we've got here is just a, a a policy drop down in the middle of this special election a highly, a highly uh, partisan uh, with the eyes of the world looking at us, special election.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the eyes of the world are on the 6th District of Georgia. I can, I can definitely attest to that from <laughs> being all the way up in D.C. Um, so th- I think the other thing that a lot of people might think about when they think about you know, how states run elections is that there has been a push in recent years to uh, increase requirements for voters to have ID at the polls uh, when they vote. Uh, conservatives and typically Republicans have argued that these are designed to prevent voter fraud, to ensure that voters are who they say they are when they show up to the polls. Um, and liberals and, and Democrats have argued that the burden that this requirement places on voters disproportionately impacts voters who tend to vote democratic. Um, I don't necessarily want to get into the politics of that. I I think that the more important consideration here is that that I think is missed in this discussion is that on the question of burden for voters who have to comply with the state voter ID law, Georgia had one of the first voter ID laws that they started implementing back in, I believe, 2007. And the state has taken multiple steps, including things like advertising, public service announcements. And at one time, they even had a a bus that uh, the state claimed would show up to you wherever you were to enable anyone to get a voter ID who wanted one. Um, So just in terms of your perspective as potentially being the Secretary of State, what do you think the state's responsibility is to make it reasonably easy for the state's residents to comply with voter ID laws? And do you think the state is currently upholding that responsibility?
2: Um, well, yeah, to answer your last part of the question, first, I I do think we are, um, doing that. It's, it's not just a driver's license or a state, uh, state ID card. There's all sorts of things, hunting license, fishing license, uh, even college, um, you know, student IDs can be used, and in fact, one bill we passed uh, since I've been in the legislature was a, a Democratic bill to uh, allow uh, private college student IDs to be used. So, I think there's a number of forms of ID that can be used, and um, I, I think we're you know we're doing what we can to to make it easy. Uh, we can always you know I I, w- I would certainly be happy to review that, and you know I I want everybody in Georgia. Uh, who wants to vote to vote and uh, making it as easy as possible is a, is is a good idea I think so uh I, I would certainly if there are some hang-ups in there then I'm more than happy to review that policy and and try to make it easier for folks to vote to register to vote
1: um and so you're running for secretary of state to replace Brian Kemp who's the current secretary of state he is running for governor in 2018 and, you know, rightly or wrongly, Brian Kemp has been in the news a lot. Uh, he's been accused of enforcing policies that are voter suppression policies by, you know, critics labeled them that way. This has put him in the middle of the political fray. A lot of the responses that I've seen from him in the press, he always, or not always, but he does seem to say that he is in the middle of the politics and the people that are attacking him are attacking him for political reasons. Um, do you see any value in sort of trying to back the secretary of state position out of the political fray? Do you think it maybe detracts from the effectiveness or confidence in that position?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, it is, you, you know, you want, uh, you want people to have confidence in the election process. And if it's perceived by, uh, you know, in my case, if I'm a Republican, if Democrats perceive that I'm unfair and trying to, uh, uh, you know, give an advantage to my fellow Republicans, then yeah, I'm I'm going to have a problem. I think you know some of these lawsuits. I don't know, uh, c- you know, could I don't really know that they're Brian Camp's fault. I think they're, you know, we we are a state that Democrats have had their eyes on politically for a number of years. Uh, they they uh, look at Georgia and think it's some a state that they can flip uh, to the Democratic column, and so you know, uh, you know. <laughs> It's often said that politics is war by other means. So you you wage war uh, in a political fashion and the courts unfortunately are are part of that process. So I think some of that's uh, un- you know just can't be avoided and if I'm Secretary of State, I've, I've already warned my wife you know you're just gonna have to get used to uh, me getting sued a lot in my role as Secretary of State and that's I think that's going to be part of the job moving forward because you know we are, uh, a state that Democrats, I think, are going to continue to focus on as something that they think they can win. So, but I think, yeah, you know, what you could do to mitigate it, I, I, I think, is, you know, I've been a guy who, um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty conservative Republican, and my voting record is pretty conservative. But I think if you talk to Democrats in the House, they uh, they don't see me as a person who's unfair, uh, and so I hope that that I can continue that reputation. And and expand that out, out to the broader uh, Democrat Democratic population in Georgia, and let them know that hey, yes, I'm a Republican, um, but you know the law is the law, and we need to we need to be fair, and we need to uh, do everything we can to provide access uh, to people being able to register to vote, and people actually getting to the polls and voting. And so uh, I would I would work very hard to uh, build those bridges. And, uh, you know, it probably won't prevent me from or, or the Secretary of State's office from being sued if I'm in there. But maybe uh, it might prevent some of them from happening. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are. And, and it, it, the second part of that, I think, is that there's probably some laws that need to be changed. Uh, there's probably, uh, you know, Kemp that uh, currently is sort of caught in the middle. The legislature passes a law. Uh, Democrats... For various reasons, files, and Democrat organizations file suit against that, and the Secretary of State has to enforce the laws that are written on the books, and so that opens uh, opens that office up to being sued. So I, I think that you know my relationship with uh, the people in the legislature could come in handy. I you know I can go and say, look, uh, we need to make some tweaks. We need to make some changes uh, in order to prevent us from uh, from being sued and, you know, prevent, uh, and, you know, to ensure fairness. So um, I think to a certain extent it can't be avoided. It's going to be political. But, uh, you know, I am I would work very hard to try to, to mitigate that as much as we can.
1: Um, kind of related to that, one of the more high-profile uh, cases that put Kemp in the news back in 2014 was the... Um, the voter registration effort that was led by Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project, and then that lawsuit that came out of whether or not those applications were processed correctly. What is your view of these sort of like large-scale voter registration drives that are organized by either nonprofits or political parties? Do you think it would be better if state or local entities took a greater role in registering people to limit the need for outside efforts like these? I'm kind of thinking of like other government programs that you interact with, you don't necessarily get signed up for them by a political party or a nonprofit. There's caseworkers for things like Medicaid and SNAP and things like that. Is that model, uh, you know, potentially better than what we have now or is what we have now adequate?
0: Well,
2: um, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, there, there was the uh, federal motor voter law that uh, allowed people, allows people to register. Pretty much any government entity that they come in contact with, and the most common one where you see this happen would be the you know the the Department of Driver Services. Every time you get your driver's license renewed, you're going to be asked if you uh, want to register to vote. There was an article in the Macon Telegraph just yesterday or the day before about uh, there was a change in uh, in the way uh, DDS handles this, uh, and as a result of that you're seeing a, a surge in voter registration across Georgia. So, I think, you know, there's there's we can probably look at that. We'd have to comply with federal law of course on that, but I think there's some things we can do to look at that. Um, but related to, you know, as it, as it relates to outside entities doing this, I th- I think you're always going to have that. Um, you're always going to have an interest uh, an interested group who wants to make sure everybody in their church or their civic club or whatever is registered to vote. And I think what we can do is I I would really want to incentivize people to register online. You can do that very easily with a driver's license. Uh, It's very cheap and uh, it saves the state a lot of money rather than having to process a paper form. But uh, the number of... One of the lawsuits that was filed last year was over the number of paper voter registration applications that were rejected. and. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, 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 that why those might be re, um, you know, rejected. One of them could be just it's not legible, and you don't know who this person is. So it makes it hard to verify. If you do it electronically, those sorts of things are eliminated. So I would want to uh, f- you know, figure out some new technologies uh, and new ways to encourage these groups to do it by electronic registration. It eliminates a lot of problems, and it a much higher rate of people getting getting registered. Now, of course, you have to have a driver's license to do that. But, you know, the r- realistically, you know, most overwhelmingly, most people have driver's licenses, no matter their, uh, as long as they're, uh, you know, no matter what race or age or what part of the state of Georgia they're from, they have a driver's license. So that takes care of most of the problem. And then you can deal with paper ballots uh, for those that don't.
1: Yeah, I imagine that's a solution that. Uh probably kids at your alma mater, Georgia Tech, could figure out Yeah, absolutely. some sort of an app or something. <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> so one of the other uh, high-profile things related to the Secretary of State recently was a 2015 data breach at the Secretary of State's office. Um, and so just sort of a, a broad question on that, what's your understanding of sort of what went wrong with that data breach? Um, and what do you anticipate that there are any kind of new protections that should be implemented that you would like to do if you became Secretary of State?
2: So you're referring to the um, accidental release of Social Security numbers? That's the case yes. you're thinking of? Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, we are, uh, we used to, some years ago in Georgia, when you applied for a, uh, applied to vote, fill out a voter registration form, we used to put Social Security numbers on there. Uh, but federal law prohibits that from happening now. So my my guess is most of the um, Social Security numbers that were released were from of people who had been registered to vote for some time now. There's no requirement in state law and no requirement in federal law that that the Secretary of State's office keep uh, the full Social Security number. The uh, We are required, however, to keep the f- last four digits. So if I'm Secretary of State, one of the first things I do is we go through there and we strip out uh, all the Social Security numbers and leave the last four digits. That makes it a whole lot less appealing to hackers, for example. Uh, that data is not nearly as valuable. And uh, if there is an accidental release, as uh, what uh, appears to have happened here uh, in that particular case, then the harm is not as great. So I, I think there's some things, you know, look, cyber attacks are, are going on all the time for every uh, entity that has any data at all, and, uh, but I think what you can do is reduce the value of that data, and by stripping out those social security numbers, which I would do if I'm Secretary of State, makes, makes that less appealing, and you know, helps protect our, our voters from identity theft. So I think that's one thing we can do.
1: Um, the other, the last sort of, uh, election related question that I had after, you know, just sort of looking at kind of how elections have been administered in recent years was there was a lot of concern over the use of law enforcement officers. There was a New York Times story, um, that looked at the use of law enforcement officers in Sparta, Georgia, in rural Georgia, um, to basically go up to people and ask, you know, try to get information to verify that their voter registration was correct. Um, this was, you know, critiqued by a lot of outside observers. I know I, for one, would, you know, it would be a little bit... I would be caught by surprise if a law enforcement officer came up to me and started talking to me about uh, my voter registration. Um, now, this appears to have been a decision by the local board of elections to to use this practice. Um, so my question is, if you have a local board of elections doing things that you think are either illegal or just not good practices. Um, what is the authority of the Secretary of State to kind of get them to change what they're doing? Do they have any authority or any sort of informal processes for doing that if it's not legal?
2: Sure. Uh, the The State Board of Elections deals with these sorts of matters all the time. And uh, the, the Secretary of State is chair of that State Board of Elections. So I think you know, what you would do is you would bring that before the State Board of Elections and instruct them to uh, uh, make a ruling on it and instruct the local Board of Education to, to do the proper thing. As, as for your specific question about law enforcement, I, I think we've got to be really careful, you know, in a broader sense in our, our society. We're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of concern uh, about uh, how law enforcement interacts with the public. And I, and I think as a, you know, as a small government guy, anytime you you ask police to go and enforce a law and interact with a member of the public uh, there's always that chance that it that it goes wrong and somebody gets somebody gets hurt thank the lord that didn't happen in these these voter registration cases but i i I would prefer that local boards of elections not ask law enforcement you know, put law enforcement in that position to have to go talk to uh, voters about or, or potential voters about their registration. I think there's better ways to handle that, and uh, you know I, I think we got to be we have to be really careful because it can give the appearance of intimidation. It can give the appearance of trying to suppress vote to favor one candidate or another, and uh, we need to do everything we can to avoid that sort of thing.
1: Um, and then, lastly, on voting, are there any sort of technological advancements on the horizon that you? Think might make voting voting easier. Uh, we're a pretty wonky podcast, so I uh, dove into a little bit of academic literature about online voting and found out that they have online voting in Estonia, but it was very, it was heavily critiqued by academics on this issue. But any other sort of big tech advancements that might be able to happen?
2: Yeah, and I think you know that raises a great point. You know, the machines that we have, the uh, DRE machines that we have, were purchased. You know, we we mentioned uh, Kathy Cox when she was Secretary of State. That's when they were purchased, in the wake of the 2000 presidential election, where uh, folks were trying to get away from paper ballots or the infamous uh, hanging chads and so forth. And um, these some of these machines are approaching 20 years 20 years old now, or, or will be by the time we get to the, our next presidential election. Uh, I think we as a state are going to have to look at replacing these machines over the next couple of years. It's going to be expensive uh, because we have a lot of voting machines. But, uh, you know, elections officials that I've talked to are having a harder and harder time. These, you know, getting replacement parts, uh, these machines are breaking down. And, um, you know, we've got to make sure that folks have confidence in the system. And so this is going to be a great time, I think, these next couple of years to take a hard look at what kind of move, what kind of uh, voting process we want to use um you know, personally i'm in favor of of having a uh, a printout not that somebody can take home but that's that voter a voter can look at um a, a screen right next to your electronic screen that shows you here's a printout uh with your ballot number and the uh the the votes that you cast so that there's a paper copy of that uh, but there are, there have been a lot of advances, uh, and I think we need, we need to do uh, we need to take a th- hard, thorough look at that over the next few years and begin purchasing these, these things. Um, you know, look, uh, you mentioned electronic voting. I think uh, at some point in the future, uh, that's how voting will take place. Uh, we we do online banking. We do all sorts of very secure um, transactions uh, online. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that right now the technology has uh, is ready for that in uh, in voting, and and I think and I think we need to be very cautious because banking, you know, if somebody somebody hacks in and steals your money, well, the bank is liable and they're going to return your money. You know, if somebody steals your vote and you have an election that's, in, uh, you know, um, imagine, just, well, here's a perfect example. Just think of the. Uh, the number of people in our country who are convinced that or have at least a doubt in their mind about Russian influence in our presidential election. And um, imagine if you had online voting and uh, there was some doubt as to what the real outcome of the presidential election was. It would be it could be catastrophic. So I think we need to go very slowly on this. You know, one advantage that we have right now in our election system is that it's not online. And so uh, in, in any state. So, uh, you know, the idea of, of Russians hacking in to hack the election, so to speak, is uh, just not possible. But, uh, look, the, the truth is, you know, uh, your generation, the millennial generation, and the next generation after that are going to be much, much more comfortable with technology. And at some point in time, our country will be ready for that. And the technology will be there to keep it secure. So we've got to constantly be... Uh, looking at this and keeping an eye on it, I think there's other things we need to look at. Uh, Maine just recently uh, did away with runoffs and is going to uh, a system they call uh, instant runoffs or ranked voting. Uh, Australia has done ranked voting f- you know, since the f- 50s. Uh, so I, th- I think there's some things we can look at that that would that I think could improve voter participation, that could uh, eliminate the le- need for runoffs. Uh, runoffs are very expensive, and then, um, you know, uh, if there's ways we can do that that the public feels comfortable with, then I think we should pursue them. So, that's, I think there's a lot of stuff we can do and take a look at.
1: Um, just to get a little bit into the other aspects of the Secretary of State job, um, you noted in your statement announcing your candidacy that you wanted to make the state of Georgia the easiest place to do business, not not just the best. Um, so, what are the, some of the issues in business registration that you see, and how do you think those should be corrected?
2: Yeah, um, I, I think we've made it easier. I think to uh, so, some of the issues that uh, were going on with regard to uh, renewing your business, I think have been ironed out. But I think there's. Uh, I'm hearing some complaints from uh, from some from some attorneys uh, about some of the pre-filled forms that. Uh, that are used to, you know, to incorporate, and uh, you know, some of that might just be, you know, lawyers don't like legal zoom and don't like pre-printed forms. They want to be hired, but I do think you have to be careful. You get incorporated, and then you find out that your incorporation is messed up, and that's that's really puts you in a in a bind. So I think we we need to review some of those policies and take a look at that. But you know, when I say uh that that I think we need to be the easiest state to do business. What I'm really talking about there is you know, we want to review all our processes and make sure they're as modern as possible. but also when it comes to occupational licensing, you know, we we want to make sure that the an occupational license uh exists to protect public safety and not to uh create an artificial barrier to people getting a job. And I think you know sometimes that can happen. And w- thankfully, we've got a mechanism in place uh, in Georgia to to deal with that issue. There's a entity called the Georgia Occupational Regulatory Review Council. Uh, GORC, I suppose, would be the acronym, since government loves acronyms. Uh, G-O-R-R-C. Uh, but it exists, and what it's supposed to do is if somebody wants to create, if a legislator, for example, wants to create a new occupational license, then it should go to... Uh, the GORC, and uh, get these people's opinion on whether this is a license that's needed or not, and they would produce a report and return it to the General Assembly for their consideration. Uh, but the second aspect uh, of their duties is to, what's supposed to happen is once every seven years, each licensing board is supposed to submit a report to GORC explaining why their, uh, their profession needs to continue to be licensed. And uh, as best I can tell, that hasn't happened since uh, Gork was given that authority. Uh, and I talked with them about it, the people in charge there, and they said, well, we just don't have the money. Uh, well, <laughs> we, you know, the law is the law. The law has to be followed. And so we've got to, uh, I, I would fight for, uh, if funding is needed, I'll fight for funding. If just, uh, you know, a kind of a swift kick in the shorts is needed, then I would do that. And... Really dig in there and make sure that licenses that we have in Georgia are there to protect the public interest and protect public safety, and not as artificial barriers to people getting jobs. And you know this this I think uh, you you look at a re- reports issued by uh, kind of a libertarian legal group called the Institute for Justice. You know they they described some some really really high barriers. To entering certain professions, and we're not talking about doctors and lawyers. We're talking about bus drivers. We're talking about uh, somebody who wants to ser- sell hair weaves and uh, you know barbers and these sorts of things. That you know people uh, you know can should be able to enter these professions and and make a great living for their family, but the barriers are too high. So I think we've got to really fight this and, and take a hard look at it. And um, yeah, I'm a guy who's always tried to bring people together. I passed a bill uh, related to student data privacy in the legislature and we had uh, Apple and Microsoft sitting at the same table in agreement with what we were doing. So, you know, I would work extremely hard to try to bring people together, even with uh, opposing views and and come to common ground and, and make sure we're doing the right thing for the people of Georgia.
1: Well, to get into some of that uh, education related stuff, you've been pretty active around education policy and legislation as a member of the House. Um, You worked on some legislation related to charter schools this year. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about that charter legislation and and what you were seeking to address in that bill?
2: Yeah, it was uh, House House Bill 430. Uh, Governor Deal signed it into law last week, actually. And what it did was it took a couple of items from uh the governor's education reform commission which the governor created a, a year before last to take a comprehensive look at at our education policies in Georgia and make some recommendations uh so we we took everything we uh that the governor recommended in the original bill and it included funding one of the big problems that charter schools face is uh that they're not funded at the, funded at the same level as traditional public schools and uh the commission found that, that that was a key thing but um you know we, we just we couldn't get the bill moved with the funding piece in it so we funding formula piece in it so we had to take that out but what stayed in there was a couple of pieces and and a, a, a grant program surrounding uh, facilities most most charter schools have to end up spending about 12 to 15, 15% of their budget on facilities and there's not a separate facilities fund for them. That's money that comes out of the allotment that's supposed to go to, towards spending uh, in the classroom on the student. So we hope that this grant program will get funded next year. Uh, and then it'll uh, you know, really ease the burden uh, for charter schools. And I, I think, you know, folks, what folks have to keep in mind, this, this debate gets really passionate, that you know, charter schools are public schools. Uh, they are funded by taxpayer dollars. And the students there are public school students. And so all public school, in my opinion, and in the com- opinion of the, of the Governor's Reform Commission, is that uh, all public school students should be treated the same, whether they attend a traditional public school or whether they attend a charter school. So this was a small step in that direction, and I hope that uh, uh, the legislature will continue to move in that direction.
1: Um, in a broad sense, how do you think the uh, the charter schools that exist in Georgia are doing? Do you think they offer education at a similar quality, or, or are there other issues that need to be addressed? Um, just sort of generally about charters.
2: Sure, um, I it 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 really um, there's a couple of things you have to look at here when you talk about charter schools because Georgia has a charter system uh, program that uh, Lieutenant Governor Kegel. Was it is that was and is the champion of, and um, I think what you have to be careful of in the charter system scenario is people just you know they, they change their entire system, entire school system to a charter system, and call it charters, but don't really do anything differently than what they did what they were doing before, and so you know that all kind of you, you see these studies come out and say well the you know charter schools in Georgia are no better well, if you're going to take a bunch of schools and not do anything differently than you were doing in, in doing before and you're not going to see any improvement, well, you, you shouldn't blame the entire charter school system for that or charter school idea for that. So I think, you know, I, I would like to separate those out. Uh, but I think you look at uh, the charter schools that work the best, in in my experience, the ones that I've seen, are where they're given the freedom to try new ideas uh you look at kip uh the kip schools in in the city of atlanta and the S- atlanta public schools by the way has been one of the best at embracing charter schools and they have some of the finest charter schools in the state uh in, in atlanta public schools and kip has a whole different uh model of, edu- of educating students and they're very very successful and they're taking students from some of the um uh, you know, uh, lowest uh, income areas of Atlanta, and providing those students with uh, opportunities uh, that that rival uh, some of the richest neighborhoods in Atlanta, and it's it's fantastic. You're seeing those kids uh, go into the best colleges in our state and around the country. And it's a wonderful thing. So I think you know you look at some of the uh, some of the other schools in my home county of Gwinnett. We have the Gwinnett Math and Science High School, and that's a charter school that's centered around helping students who have uh, you know, a, a, a abilities in math and science to really thrive. There's another charter school um, in Savannah that's in, that rivals uh, Georgia, uh, Gwinnett School of Math and Science for the top high school in the, in the state every year. So I think you know, the charter schools that really do well are those that are given the freedom to uh, totally rethink uh, education from top to bottom. Uh, their teachers are empowered. There's less bureaucracy, and uh, what, I, what I would hope would happen is that uh, all other other traditional public schools would look at this and look at the ones who are really successful and say, hey, what can we learn from that, and what can we implement in our schools? And um, that, that would be what I would hope would happen, and instead of this, you know, trying to fight to constantly shut them down, uh, we ought to embrace this. Uh, the challenges we're facing in education are many uh the jobs that are that that kids are going to be working at uh 2 5 and 10 years from now are going to be totally different than the jobs we have today and uh we've got to do everything we can to uh, prepare kids for that and uh not every student thrives in the traditional classroom setting where you have a teacher up there lecturing to 20 30 students sitting at a desk so let's uh Let's let kids learn. Let's bring more technology into the classroom and let kids learn the way that's best for them. And I think the charter, public charter schools can can really be uh, uh, the tip of the spear, so to speak, in leading innovation throughout all our public schools.
1: And uh, lastly, on education, there has been a lot of discussion about school turnaround in the legislature, both uh, with the constitutional amendment that uh, was voted down last November, and then the what was referred to as the Plan B on that Opportunity School District constitutional amendment, that plan was passed um, in the legislature this last legislative session. And on the show, we've also talked about federal re- research around school turnaround in a, a report that came out recently from the Department of Education s- showing that basically school turnaround efforts at the federal level during the Obama administration were pretty ineffective in um, improving these schools that are that are poor performing on a really regular basis. Um, what's your view of the legislation that came out of this year's session The um, the OSD Plan B. Are are you happy with that, or or do you think there's more the legislature can do to address school turnaround issues?
2: Uh, I think I think it's a good I think it's a good bill. It's a good first step, and I think it's uh, it's worth us embracing them and, and seeing how it works, and then seeing in a year or two what other changes might need to be made. The biggest difference between uh, House Bill three thirty eight and the OSD uh, measure that failed at the ballot box is uh, this is not really a school takeover. This is much more a collaborative effort where the Department of Education, under the guidance of a uh, um, a, a school turnaround officer, a chief turnaround officer, would work hand in hand with local school districts and with the uh, principal and teachers and staff in a local school that's struggling. It's a much more collaborative effort and I, th- I think that can that can pay some big dividends. Um, I was on the, I'm on the education committee in the house, heard lots of testimony about this and, uh, sure there were some opponents to the bill and to the concept, Um, and you know, and frankly, some, some folks who are opposed to it really what they, their only answer to, to, uh, fixing education is to dump more money into it. And, you know, the study, I can point you to a dozen studies that show that, that money, sure money's important, but simply, putting more money in after this problem is not going to fix it either. So I think a a collaborative effort teachers have been at the table uh you know I know uh you know representative uh Tanner representative Kevin Tanner uh I can just tell you there's nobody in the legislature that works harder to reach out to uh people who are going to be impacted by a bill he introduces than Kevin Tanner and he talked uh numerous times to teachers groups incorporated things that, uh, that they would like to see in the bill uh school boards uh he worked with them too and uh, you know did did everything he could to try to bring as many people to the table as possible and i think you saw that at the end uh, that these groups were uh, uh, you know were not out there vehemently opposed to the bill so i'm hopeful that uh this collaborative effort will take place and that we'll start to see Uh, some turnaround in these schools. And, you know, to your point about, you know, efforts in the past, look, turning around a school is tough. There are a multitude of reasons of why a student uh, may struggle. Obviously, poverty plays a big role in this. You know, you take a look at the schools that are, uh, you know, on Governor Deal's uh, or Department of Education's list as ones that uh, might be candidates for for this program, and you, you also lay over... Uh, where the poorest areas of our state are and they're almost identical it's uh you know poverty plays a plays a big role in this uh but i think that if we focus our resources correctly and if we uh, if we do have a collaborative effort we can see some change and uh th- you know the the key to breaking this uh poverty in my mind if there's only one thing you can do to break to break the cycle of poverty and that's uh, the most important thing in my mind would be education. So if we can provide these students uh, in these schools with a chance uh, to pursue a great education, then uh, we we have uh, really unlocked uh, a, a key door to success for those students. So um, I'm hopeful, and I, I think that uh, you're going to see the legislature and the Department of Education and the state school board and, Local school boards uh, working really hard to make
1: this thing work. And on that point about education funding, uh, that's been a project that's been really interesting to me, and one that we're going to pursue on the show and in our research going forward. Because the um, you know part of that education reform commission that you were talking about, they made recommendations around reforming the state's quality basic education funding formula, um, and those have not been adopted yet, but uh, I think we're interested in taking a look at, you know, the different components of that and, and how that works. Um, do you have any sense as to why those uh, recommendations have stalled thus far? I know it's a really hard problem, but...
2: I think, um, I, I, just my speculation is that, um, you know, it, it's it's legislative strategy on the governor's part. He He and his team, Really put a lot of effort into the Opportunity School District uh, ballot measure, uh, which, of course, you know that that you're really talking about a year and a half worth of work, and of course that was voted down. And then um, while the uh, House Bill three thirty eight, you know, wasn't necessarily uh, the governor's bill, he was he and his team were very much involved in that, and so I think they I think it was a, a strategic decision. Uh, to let's focus on that uh, to help the students who are most in need, and then we can uh, start talking about other stuff. And I I really hope, I think um, Governor Deal has been a guy who has not been afraid to take on big reforms or attempt big reforms. Uh, The criminal justice system uh, is very much different than it was before Governor Deal took office. And I'm hopeful, very hopeful that... uh, uh, he and his team this next legislative session will uh, bring forward the QBE funding formula change. Uh, what I, my my sc- superintendent here in Gwinnett County is Alvin Wilbanks, who um, is was a part of helping to craft that and is and uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but uh, liked the uh, proposal that the uh, that the commission came up with. So I think it would have broad support. And uh, obviously, the devil's in the details and what the bill actually looks like. But I think that uh, if we do it right, we can uh, we can get a lot of support from uh, f- from superintendents and school board members around the state.
1: And uh, just to wrap up for the show, the, one of the things that I've noticed in in the way you are as a state representative is you've been really active on online platforms you blogged at peach pundit back in the day you have you were doing daily morning videos during the legislative session and and then you had that pokemon ad that i loved from your from your reelect um do you do you get the sense that these platforms make it easier to interact with the constituents is that is that getting to be more significant for you as you do more of these things yeah
2: and um, I, I, I'm really excited that um, uh, there are a number of other legislators uh, who are uh, embracing this too and using these platforms to communicate with constituents. And, um, you know, I think especially as as millennials get become more and more a part of the political system uh, and, and exercise their voting strength, I think it's going to be critically important. Uh, to use these uh, new mediums to communicate. You know, one of the things that I found when I got elected was what happens at the Capitol and what people think happens at the Capitol were two totally different things. So a lot of what I tried to do and what I continue to try to do is in my little, for example, in my little morning live broadcast during the session, I would try to explain to people what was going on and what you know, if you're watching and you see a certain motion made what does it mean and you know how does a bill actually really become a law and uh, you're probably too young for schoolhouse rock but uh, that was a, one of the great ones was ex- a little cartoon explaining you know I'm just a bill a catchy little song that old guys like me grew up on but you know any any I, I guess I've I've thought any time I can explain to uh, my constituents what is happening at the Capitol... Uh, then then that's a good thing and I'm going to continue to do that and uh, you know, I, I'm not going to promise as Secretary of State that I'll do a live broadcast every morning because it's a full-time job but uh, I would most definitely continue to uh, reach out to uh, constituents uh, on a regular basis and interact with people and I, and I enjoy it I, you know, I, um, I've always enjoyed a good political debate and uh, um, so I'll, I will continue to do that.
1: Um, well, thank you so much, Buzz, for coming on the show today. We really appreciate having you. And if uh, you'd like to be back on, you're welcome to join us Well, thanks time.
2: very much. I enjoyed it and would love to come back on. So uh, we'll do it again.
1: That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share this show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.